0: Think something new Mm. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Serious Disc Agreement, the only podcast on the internet that dares to discuss physical media in all its glorious forms. My name is Alexi Toliopoulos and as always, I am joined by none other than Mr. Blake Howard. Blakey, baby, how are you going?
1: Oh, my brother Alexi, I am... Excellent when I get to spin the discs with you. And today we're back in Australia's beautiful Art Deco Design, mm-hmm. uh, classic series from Umbrella Entertainment, Sunburnt Screen. So I'm really happy and honestly, I'm super excited because two Australian films we we'll get to cover today that I have never seen before yes. until we've started discussing it. And one of them absolutely leveled me. So I'm so excited to talk to you about them.
0: I am right there with you. These are both discoveries for me. I hadn't seen either of them before. And that is the thing that really excites me about this label, Sunburnt Screens from Umbrella Entertainment, is that there is equal parts restoration, equal parts, uh, revitalization of former classic films or classic films, and also kind of rediscovery and also even just discovery straight up. Like there are some movies yes. that we've got a glimpse of that are coming down the line that I think have never even been close to being on my radar. So <laughs> yes. I'm really interested in seeing how this label continues to develop and what they keep doing with it. We've got a couple of films here today. Why don't we start with the one that we are probably a little bit more familiar with, uh, starring some of the most beloved actors in Australian film history. Let's talk about Nadia Tass's The Big Steel, starring Ben Mendelsohn, Claudia Carvin, and Steve Bisley, amongst many other favourites. On Monday, Danny Clark turned 18. On Tuesday, his inheritance arrived. Happy birthday, son. That's awesome. On Wednesday, he fell in love. Uh, why would I want to go out with him? On Thursday, he was an emotional wreck. But on Friday, Danny had an idea. Well, I'll pick up my new car. Huh? I'm not really into car. Well, it's a Jaguar. I told her i got a
1: Jaguar.
0: Well, he was in the heat of the moment.
1: But I'll still go
0: out with him. Desperate times take desperate measures. They're not buying a car you buying a of history. Now, with the car of his dreams and a date with Joanna... And don't you try touching her breasts. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, apart from everything.
1: I think our Daniel is a very fine young man. He should be locked up. Blow in here, sir.
0: Whoops. Strong end. <laughs> Goddard! From the makers of Malcolm, The Big Steal. is going to kill you. Yeah, I know. I- Joanna and the Jaguar. <laughs> It'll steal your heart away. The Big Steel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, look, Nadia Tass's uh, and and, um, and David Parker's The Big Steal from 1990 is a kind of uh, sweet coming-of-age uh, Aussie-Melbourne car culture mm-hmm. cultural comedy Yeah, um, that it, it really talks about the very sort of eclectic and strange expectations of the cultural clash of Melbourne specifically at that time and talks about this weird class self-definition by the car that you drive. And they kind of take these, like, foundational premises and then get to, like have a blast with just making you know a, a really weird eclectic bunch of strange characters mm. um and strange villains uh, out of used car salesmen played by Steve Bisley and we just get this wonderful weird coming of age movie Ben Mendelsohn is Danny Clark um he is his family are, are Brits and they've come over here extremely working class mm. for whatever reason Danny is obsessed with the car brand Jaguar yeah. and he really wants it He has an opportunity because his parents are very good um, at saving to have a little bit of money under his belt, and he's been working all through his high school career in a parking garage to save up and buy a Jag. And when he does buy one from Gordon Farkas, one of the best named used car (laughs) salesmen ever, uh, he actually is duped by this dodgy, uh, 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 completely OTT, uh, outstanding top 10 mullets of all time from (laughs) Steve Bisley car salesman. And there's a whole bunch of hijinks that come up with uh, uh, a Danny and his buddies, um, including uh, the great uh, Damon Harriman as his sort of geeky, nerdy mate Um, and uh, uh, getting them back as well as love blooming with Joanna Johnson played by Claudia Carvin. So like, again, a queen of Aussie TV with things like secret life of us Mm -hmm. and dating the enemy. Um, And I, I had a real lovely time. I literally wrote down Lex in preparation for talking to you about this is like, More movies that make me feel the way that
0: Nadia Tass movies make me feel. Beautifully put. She has such like this soulful empathy from this film and Malcolm that we discussed uh, not too long ago on this podcast. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's like this films are imbued with empathy and it's interesting to see how the empathy changes between the two films now because... Both are quite light-hearted comedy with some stakes to them. Uh, And here it's like more of a communal empathy around. Like where you get insights into like the relationships between all these people and the status between them all and how they relate to each other. And it... Plays it so beautifully for the comedy of it as well. Like there's just this like touch of a heightened reality to this world in this film, which I think works so beautifully in the same kind of way that John Hughes would really work when he was firing on all cylinders. I love it.
1: I love that you said that because that's what I was trying to think of. I'm like, Mm. who in Australia really has ever done it better? for this kind of lighthearted romantic comedy Mm. that has a feeling, that has a mood, that has music involved, that isn't afraid to be like a little bit romantic uh, in that sort of way. Um, And and not just the romance of like a, a couple coming together, but just the romance of like, carefree laissez-faire like Mm. just like a little bit taking the edges off things like it does have some dark stuff and some stakes but just knowing how to like temper everything down take the hard edges off take the grit away and just have it be a bit silly Mm. and i yeah i from the from minute one when the score is playing and there's these longing looks between danny and and joanna and the music's playing and in the high school and
0: it's got that mental oh, of, mental as anything, like, soundtrack it's, 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 coming in. The first five minutes of this movie, I'm like, oh, my God, this is, like... This is a classic that I'm just about to witness. <laughs> like, I cannot believe it. And especially seeing how young all everyone looks. Like, from Ben Mendelsohn, Claudia Carvin, Damon Harriman, they actually look like kids. I couldn't believe it. Like, I've seen Ben Mendelsohn young before, but seeing the other two as basically teens was kind of like mind blowing to me. I know it's also like, you
1: know, Claudia Carvin, queen of sort of drama mm. on television for many years in Oz. Mendo and Harriman though, most recently, are like dark yeah, killers, brooding. gritty serial killers. And and seeing watching them just come into this and just be like total sweetie pies. Yeah. Damon Harriman plays Mark Jorgensen, um, Danny Clark's nerdy mate. It's just like I just love that 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 little choice. They just mm. play off each other so so terrifically. and uh, yeah, it's it's the way that they bounce off of each other is really special.
0: And you've touched on him a little bit. I need to say something about it before we get into the features on this disc. Steve Bisley's performance as the oh antagonist, God. this scummy, used <laughs> car salesman has to be, one of the most enjoyably slimy antagonists I've ever seen in Australian cinema. Like Steve <laughs> yes. Bisley is an icon in this country. He's a TV star. He's in Mad Max and stuff. So we see him a lot. I don't think I've ever quite seen him utilized so brilliantly where he's having so much fun. You can tell how what a blast he is playing this guy. And I believe he won the AFI Award for Best Supporting Actor for this film. It's a absolute deserving of it. I want to see more comedic performances like this from our most dearly beloved character actors.
1: Yeah, I I love, love, lo- <laughs> I love, 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 love this performance. It rocks, is so rocks, gra- dude. He's so funny he's, in it. He's, you think that he's going like... I mean, firstly, Gordon Farkas starts out... He's his boss, Frankie J Holden, Mm -hmm. another
0: classic Australian character. We love Frankie J from fricking round the twist. We love Frankie J Holden.
1: He's he's painted Steve Bisley's face onto the the car lot because he's better looking than his boss. Mm -hmm. So he's a good front man for it. He's a grimy, sleazy, car thieving, you know, paying off crooked cops kind of guy. But it's all measured through... Like desperation, peacocking, you know, like complete, um, uh, overwhelming narcissism, and then like just going out and being the loosest party boy, um, gross, uh, taking photos of a like ladies mud wrestling night that he wants to go out to, um, occasional bit of like cross dressing kink. <laughs> it's just, it's wonderfully weird and silly, and I just I think that there just needs to be more comedies. And I think that, like, Two Hands is, like, one degree closer to full-on crime comedy. But, like, when I was watching The Big Steal, I kept thinking, like, I love tonally the kind of Big Steals and the two hands of it all because they kind of know how funny and ridiculous these weird and eclectic characters can be in their settings. It can have dark stuff and it can have stakes. But I feel like The Big Steal and Two Hands are, like, is to, uh, having a dialogue between one another about different degrees of movies that they're having. So for me, it was such a treat. And I just, again, was thinking, when's the last time that I truly, you know, when I, that I, I don't know, was truly blown away um, by an Australian film stylistically? And I think maybe one of the last ones that I can think of, a contemporary one that kind of was about, had some seriousness and it had uh, um had some like loving uses of mm. style and music was maybe Baby Teeth yeah um that was in twenty nineteen Shannon one too. Murphy's great great film and again just again there was a lot of darkness but light and uh and and sunshine and use of music and style and yeah just you know very very uh very kind of special to check out The Big Steel
0: and like to be now engrossed in Nadia Tass's work is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And the special features on this disc are many. They have put some great stuff together. There's two audio commentaries. Uh, There is some cast interviews back from the original release and then a decade or so later, uh, some audition tapes. But what I really like, and it's the second time or maybe third time that I've seen one of these special features on this sunburnt label is where was it filmed? Which are these location featurettes? Paul Hegel. We I Paul, Paul Hegel is the, the discovery for me of these of this whole label. <laughs> He's got a great YouTube channel at P Hegel, um, where he goes to like the locations of Australian films, and he makes like these little short film documentaries around like the locations and how they've changed over the years and they're full of like just a lovely little touch of humor and i think that they are like such a unique special feature for these this label because there's something about it that feels so in tone with the films that they've been selected with, and they yes. do provide like this modern day context for them as far as Australia's changed, and they are complete charmers. Like the, I am so charmed by these special features. It's the first thing I'm going to watch every time I get one of these sunburned screen releases.
1: Yeah, and also it's like, it's the things are, aren't inherently cinematic mm-hmm. like in a town. Like you don't necessarily think of it that way. So that's what's kind of cool about it in Oz because so many iconic locations that you associate with you know, big Hollywood movies yeah. or big, you know, you know, big spy movies like the Bond franchise, Bourne franchise, you're in Germany, you're in London, you're in these like big towns and these identifiable spots. But like, it's something so quirky to say, hey, like, they found a car park which literally hasn't changed since like yeah. the 90s. And and they they decked it out, uh-huh. they lit it, they did a few things and, and, and the street doesn't look much different. It's kind of like really quaint and charming and even just in this same one from Hegel, there's that great moment from um, Alvin Purple yeah. Where like you see a guy parachute into the uh, into the lake there and just see how the city skyline has changed over, you know, 30 years is pretty fascinating as well. So, yeah, no, I really like this because it's it's again, I think you you're spot on, it's about the tone of the special feature is so important to the tone of the thing, mm-hmm. you know? And 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 it's it, Paul's got a good sense of humor and it's a bit playful and it's it's, it's bringing this in and and it's just again like um, yeah. talking about our cities as 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 filmable location.
0: It strikes this perfect low-key tone that I find just so charming and so watchable. And I would give a huge shout-out to his YouTube channel, uh, P-H-A-G-L Productions. Fagel, Pagel, I don't know how to say it in the one-word <laughs> thing. But Paul Hagel, man, he's a freaking king, dude. I'm I'm obsessed with the guy now.
1: <laughs> well, from um, obsessing over Paul Hagel to uh, traveling... Much much farther back in time, uh, to 1943. In fact, where it is set, um, is the eighth Sunburnt Screens edition. It is the Overlanders from 1946. Lex, tell the people listening about this Chips Rafferty vehicle that was set at a time when there were four films being made in this country a year, right at the, uh, right at the conclusion of World War Two, uh, because it. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it.
0: That's exactly it. I really don't think I've seen anything quite like this. Um, so this is a film from just in that post-war period. And it is one of those types of films that we saw so much of back then. Even Casablanca is something I would put into this category quite rightly. Mm. Where they are, uh, part of like the propaganda machine of, uh... The media as far as like the war <laughs> effort goes. And so this is like post-World War Two, and it was instigated by the Australian government who felt that um, Australia didn't get enough credit for their uh, contribution to World War Two and their contribution to the war effort. And so they tee up with Ealing Studios, the great comedy studio in England that produced stuff like um, the Lavender Hill Mob and the Lady Killers to kind of create an Australian Western modern day war epic. Um, reminds me a lot of Buzz Lerman's Australia, I would say, this film. This is the only yeah, thing that I've seen that is an Australian film that fully. Makes me see the lineage of where that film comes from, and uh, it basically is a giant cattle journey across the Northern Territory, where uh, Chaps Chips Rafferty is leading like this cattle trail of like five thousand, five (laughs) thousand bulls and cows um, uh, to safety, basically because there is a chance of uh, the of invasion i guess of you know yeah. that did happen well, in world war 2
1: yeah it's it, what's really strange is f- for this context is in the the i guess the surging japanese forces who were sort of running mm. through indonesia and then were ultimately sort of paused and halted at papua new guinea even though that darwin was bombed there was this threat that japanese forces were just going to invade australia and and so to see this uh, film that very much sort of lionizes this self-sacrificial mm. energy of like, we're going to scorch the earth. We're going to pull all of our, you know, we're going to pull the white forces back. It actually is a fascinating document mm. of like re- the real fear of invasion, which is kind of gloss over because uh, A, do you want to show how much fear was actually there? Or B, do you want to show you the, the fearful actions in, in, in history as, uh, as being lionized? Cause they're kind of not, they're like burning their, burning down their farms they're burning down their homesteads. they're polluting water they're mm. killing cattle um and so it does really speak to some of that you know post-war um, boom and res- resurgence of those different cattle farms because they were in preparation were sort of coming back down to the southern parts of the country but i i, I just found it fascinating lex because i'm not sure if you, how you felt about it but like i was watching this and i'm like it feels kind of like part kind of Archival documentary mm. about the events that these happen, part soap opera uh, around these different characters and and what they're doing, and then part absolute, you know, proto Australia movement about like how do we be heroic? Well, we yeah. move our cattle to feed our troops, um, and so it does feel very rara but it it genuinely. It genuinely just doesn't feel like anything that I've ever seen, and you just look at it and you're like, "Wow, this is a really interesting period." It hasn't really been mined, mm. um, in anything other than, um, something like Australia. It, it it definitely takes wholly takes like the you know the sort of uh, Anglo um, European lens, mm. um, and 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 very much diminishes the indigenous lens and and sort of. But I do love one thing I love about it apart from I guess its overall ideology I love the perspective of the world at war taking up everyone's lives Mm. and that this particular lens even though it's a great expansive country that we have that our indigenous population has no relationship to the war that these Europeans have one view that the Japanese are about to you know roll up to the shores at any moment and that actually doesn't eventuate. And so I really love that there's like this weird different collision of perspectives about what's happening in the world mm. because it just feels like, almost feels like that in contemporary times. They're like, if you have Twitter or you don't have Twitter, you're living in two different worlds. Yeah. And um, that's the most minor version of that. But like in World War II, I love that they kind of captured that feeling because it, it feels you know, feels really unique to that time and and nothing like I've ever seen explored in film then or since.
0: Absolutely. I think the thing that really strikes me as the thing I've never seen before, that I think you and I both would really resonate with, is that we are people that love Australian film. We've explored Australian film from pretty much every era. But I've seen maybe one other film from Australian cinema pre-1940. Sixty, And yeah. seeing this film, and then there's a bonus feature on here, which is another full feature film that are uh, pre-1960 films set in Australia. They seem so much like another language is being translated to Australia. Like it doesn't feel... Yes. It, almost a little something uncanny about it because it seems so big. And we're so used to Australian films feeling smaller perhaps, or exploring a very Australian perspective, I think this film kind of gets to that Australian perspective, but it's from an outsider point of view, which I find really interesting. And the bonus feature, which is an entire another film from 1955, also starring Chips Rafferty called Kangaroo. Uh, it is really interesting to see the, t- the comparison between the two because the Overlanders is black and white, English produced, English made film that feels in line with like what Ealing Studios was doing at that time. Um, and kind of like the early ish kind of, epic films of David Lean. There's a little bit of that in there with what this film's going for. Kangaroo, on the other hand, is Technicolor, and it feels very Hollywood in the way that it's kind of capturing it. It feels more like John Wayne westerns that are not directed by John Ford. And uh, one thing that stood out to me there between the two is Kangaroo is directed by a big filmmaker, Lewis Milestone, who directed the 1930s All Quiet on the Western Front, and uh, Ocean's Eleven, the original one, Mutiny on the Bounty, the Marlon Brando version of Mice and Men with Burgess Meredith and Lon Chaney Jr. So it's interesting to see his... Oh, going on to Australia. It's a, it's an odd little film and I think it's a really cool bonus feature to just put a whole nother feature film starring like Australian legend Chips Rafferty who kind of epitomized the Australian larrikin uh, for a long time and what the Australian man really was. The one thing that I would criticize about this disc is there's one other special feature that I really enjoyed. It's just from the National Film and Sound Archive, archival footage um, about cattle from that era, uh, set and filmed at the the Sydney show, which is known as like the Royal Easter show these days. And you just see some big old cows. And I really enjoyed that. (laughs) I loved seeing those big cows and stuff. And it was really a nice little insight. But what I really wish this disc had, because this is like a classic film that I don't know really much about, I wish there was a feature of some contemporary film criticism and Australian film historians discussing the importance of this film and uh, giving us some of that context. Like if there was a David Stratton or even like a Jason DeRosso or someone like that, Adrian Martin, just someone talking about what this film is, giving us this modern-day context for it, I really would have appreciated that. I really would have been curious about how it was received.
1: Mm. Because if you're finally viewing your country in the language of this, like, you know, this is a film by Harry Watt, Mm. Harry Watt's style here is like, it's... It's it's like an expansive serial. Like, it has narration... It has things that look like archival footage. It couldn't look any more different from cinema footage. It's just like this archival, very listless, like strange, abstract, objective lens. And mm. then it gets into this more melodramatic, sequenced, you know, very traditional, closed, boxy interactions that are happening. Um, it kind of, has an element of they don't make them like they used to because you're actually seeing a number of cattle you're seeing horses you're seeing people on horseback yeah. none of this can be faked there's no special effects it's just everything that you see on screen is there but yeah i i'd be really interested to see what people felt about mm. it because it's not rah rah like it, it it is it is trying to be propagandistic in a in in, a, in its way but it doesn't like you know i think gallipoli does and both doesn't do this mm. and i think that Breaking Morant probably does it even more effectively than Gallipoli. Like, Gallipoli manages to be one of the only anti-war films of all time. Yeah. And then same with Breaking Morant. And so this one feels, like, strange because, again, it's talking about the war effort is just moving some cattle. Mm. You know what I mean? It just feels like it's, like, whatever its intent was, maybe it didn't land. I would love to hear the perspective on that.
0: Yeah. There is... uh audio commentary by uh steven vagg who is an australian film historian for this film and kangaroo that i would like to explore but i wish there was just like a short documentary feature of some kind on here to kind of give us some explanation on it um but it's a really interesting release it's a really interesting film harry what the filmmaker behind it have you looked at what else he's done no, I haven't. Early propaganda. Like, everything else is short, like, short nine-minute things <laughs> called London Can Take It about, like, the bombings and stuff. Um,
1: yeah, west of, west of Zanzibar where no vultures fly, like, nine men, Hitler's three. Yeah, absolutely. That's. It's funny that that's with his filmography and his language because it just resonates that he's just made serious mm, before that.
0: Absolutely. And I think this is this is an interesting one. Chips Rafferty is someone who is definitely worth exploring and I'm glad that he has been ushered into this label it is really interesting to see him become part of like this label that is exploring australian cinema there are some more coming down the line i saw one Ooh. announced this morning blake for what sunburnt screens is doing next and i'm so excited because it's one of my favorite all-time australian films it is anna kokinos's head on starring alex oh. dimitriades and paul capsis based on the book by Christos Toulkas, called "Loaded," one of my favorite books, one of my favorite movies. Cannot wait to see what is going to be on there.
1: Uh, I am uh, couldn't be in bigger agreement, emphatically, that um, "Head On" is a stone cold classic mm-hmm. and deserve. And it and it feels like you know we've been trying to figure out for the labels that we cover on this show about like what what in essence are they doing, and I feel like sunburnt screens is like almost uh sunburnt screens is like forming a bridge between what iconic australian films uh, of of decades and years past have done and what and how we've redefined iconic films and and some so sometimes it feels like they're completely divergent like themes of these different movies that are coming down the pipe but it feels like what is australia now what is australia then what is australia now what is australia then and it feels like that's happening and so head on feels like uh, in that vein. So interesting to see what is pairing with it because, you know, we've had big steel and, um, you know, we had Breaker Moran and Malcolm, for example, as five and six. And then, and seven and eight are the big steel. So again, like six and seven, like Nadia Tass classics running one mm-hmm. two, one from each other and then the Overlanders. So now that it's head on, interesting to see where they go next, but it's really, it's, you know, very, very interesting. And also um, they're keeping an incredibly high standard yeah. of stuff that they're bringing out for Sunburnt Screens at the moment. Uh, we, we talked in one of our last year's disagreements about how do you follow Showgirls on, um, mm. on their other label, Central Cinema, and it's going to be interesting to see how they keep keep it up and keep like bringing these incredible uh, films to, back to life yeah. um, along the way.
0: Absolutely. Blake, always a pleasure to discuss Australian film in particular with you. I really love oh. getting into these ones.
1: I love getting into it too, my friend. Thank you so much. And thank you for bringing up again, before I let uh, you go and us go out of this, um, Thank you for reminding me to shout back out to your terrific Australian Psycho series and Wake in Fright, particularly, and Chips Rafferty over at the Total Reboot, mm. um, and some of the great stories that come out in that podcast about him being allowed to drink uh, whatever he wants yeah. on set, not fake beer, real piss. Um, he can do, do the real do piss. The real piss. <laughs> <laughs> he can do the real piss. So that's a huge one. But mate, where can people find you uh, before our next serious Agreement or in
0: Breaking Bad? You can check out Total Reboot. You can also hopefully. Cut this out if it hasn't happened or isn't happening soon. You can hear me on the uh, Zodiac Chronicle with Cameron James talking about uh, Charles Fleischer in the basement scene.
1: You can. And also now you're going to be joined by one Robert Graysmith, the actual subject of the film, the writer of Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked and shooting Zodiac, because we wax lyrical and hypothesize how could he have been so insane uh, for this thing to have happened and him not realise how much danger he's in and you'll get to hear yes. yourself Alexi and listeners out there about wow. what he has to say on the matter which is, uh, is special and yes it is coming very soon so in the next couple of weeks people will be able to hear that
0: episode from your good self very exciting always a pleasure never a chore
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is great it is great It's great to see you guys and yes please stay on everything <laughs> One Heat Minute Productions if you like what we do and I just want to shout out for both the Total Reboots at the Reboot Rats and for One Heat Minute Productions crew um, jump onto the Patreon it is yeah. a huge help for both shows um, if you're a fan of what Alexi and I do together or apart um, huge help to jump onto both of those to support um, for as little as five bucks a month or I think as little as a one or two dollars a month over on a one eight minute pa- uh, Patreon um, you can get some great bonus content in line with everything that we're covering so guys thank you so much for listening hope you're enjoying Serious Disc Agreement and Imprint Companion whichever we're doing on Physical Media together Rate and review us wherever you can. It's a massive help, and uh, and we'll look forward to bringing you some more
0: disc chat in the coming weeks. Beautiful. Beautiful.
1: Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Advice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Life's better with American Family Insurance.